Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. We have finally arrived at the last episode in our series of reruns with this year's Emmy nominees, and it's a big one. I really cannot express how much joy it brought me to spend an hour with Henry Winkler on this podcast. We talked last summer between the third and fourth seasons of Barry, which has really become one of the two defining performances of Henry's long career. He has been nominated for his role as Gene Cousineau, opposite Bill Hader's Barry, for each of the show's four seasons, and won his first ever Emmy for the show's premiere season more than 40 years after he was first nominated for playing the Fonz on Happy Days. Henry also happens to have a new memoir out today called Being Henry, The Fonz and Beyond, so now really felt like the perfect moment to reshare this episode. We get into so many iconic moments from his life and work in this conversation, and Henry was even kind enough to recreate my favorite line of his from Arrested Development, so stay tuned for that. And please keep a close eye on this feed as we have some very exciting announcements coming up, and we'll be back with all new episodes with some guests I can't quite believe will actually be here starting next month. But for now, here's me with the legend himself, Henry Winkler. Well, I hope I'm not keeping you from the fish. I know uh, you're you've been very busy fishing this summer, and I I, I don't want to take you away from it. Well, you know what? It is one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, well, it's it's become a, a favorite thing of of everyone is looking at your your photos on Twitter. Yeah, one of the only adult books I've ever written is <laughs> pictures that I've taken while fly fishing. I love that. What's the and title there? I've I've never I've never met an idiot on the river. Is that true? Basically, uh people who fly fish are pretty wonderful. Yeah. Um do you feel like you uh, you understand why uh the internet has become so obsessed with your photos of uh you holding up your uh your trout? I didn't. This is like the second year in a row that I've gotten a lot of feedback from Twitter. (laughs) And I'm thinking that it is so scary out there, degree-wise, rhetoric-wise, crime-wise, lack of critical thinking-wise, that the joy of nature and the fish and my true exuberance, because it's very hard to catch a trout, might be it. I don't know. Otherwise, I for a long time, I was baffled. That's my explanation at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, so thank you for, for doing this. The last time we talked, um, see if you remember this, was at your house in uh, the summer of 2018. You were kind enough to invite me to your home, and I uh, I wrote a, a 
profile interview of you for the Daily Beast. Um, and then about a month after that, you won your first Emmy. So I don't know if that's a coincidence or uh, or what, but... <laughs> I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to go. Here we are again. So I'm all for it. Yeah. Well, that was it was so fun to get to talk to you then um, when you were sort of just at the beginning of this whole Barry journey, um, which I have just loved the show, you know, throughout. Um, talking about the Emmys, uh, that that night where you won your first Emmy um, in the summer of 2018. Uh, what are your memories from from that night and and just being there and, and all of that happening? What are my memories? I The thoughts I had were, I have been here before where I've been nominated and my tush has never left the seat. <laughs> yeah. I was thrilled to have my name called. Before it was, Ron Howard came up and gave me a hug to say congratulations and good luck. Keenan Thompson was sitting directly across the aisle. We leaned over and squeezed each other's hands <laughs> because we had done a uh, an, an animated show called Sit Down, Shut Up uh, with uh, Mitchell Horowitz together. As I was walking down the aisle... I saw Kate McKinnon, who gave me an incredible smile. I saw Bill and Alec. Yeah, and they stood up and, and gave you a hug, I think. I gave them a kiss on the cheek. Now, I gave Alec Berg a kiss publicly on the cheek. He is so close to the vest that I don't know, but it, he was happy. <laughs> I was thrilled. I walk up and I see... Claire and Matt, the two stars of The Crown. Yeah, they were the ones who presented to you. And I lose my mind, and I start talking to them about their second season <laughs> and how great it was. <laughs> then I realized, I've got a speech. I turn around, and I have 39 seconds. Yeah, it's counting down. And counting down, and then finally there was a red X, but I just kept going. Okay, I only have 37 seconds. I wrote this 43 years ago. Okay, okay. can I just say, Skip Brittenham said to me a long time ago, if you stay at the table long enough, the chips come to you. And tonight, I got to clear the table. If you get a chance to work with Bill Hader or Alec Berg, run, don't walk. Thank you for producing us, for creating us, for directing us, and, and for um, Bill for acting with us and all of our wonderful writers, Sherry Thompson and uh, wonderful Sharon, Sherry Goldberg, an extraordinary publicist, uh, uh, Cliff and Aaron and Chris, who represent me for, almost for the first time. I feel represented. I can't stop yet. My wife, Stacy. Oh my God, my cast and crew. And, and the kids, kids, Jed, Zoe, and Max, you can go to bed now. Daddy won! And you had that great line, uh, sending your kids, telling your kids they could go to sleep now. Yes, and my <laughs> children were 40, 49, and 36. Well, it was, it was, it was so great. Uh, I was so happy that you won that Thank night. You. Um, and Thank congrats you. on your third consecutive nomination for Barry, which is very it's impressive. Um, and for surviving to season four, which is another uh, feat in itself, right? We start, uh, we start a few days from now. I'm sure there's nothing you can tell me, but um, have you been reading the scripts or what are you, what, what stage are you at where you're... I have gotten so far the first four and then a rewrite 
of the first four. And uh, so far, that's all I know. And, uh, there, you know, the, the, um, there's an added expense now HBO has, has acquired. Uh, there's a guy named Gino who stands in the corner, who's very large. <laughs> and if I say anything about what I've read, Gino reminds me to <laughs> shut up. Um, you said, you know, that you always felt like you, Henry, were very different from the Fonz um, in your personality. And it was a very, you know, he was a very different person from you. How similar do you feel now to Gene Cousineau? Do you feel like you you have a lot in common with him or is he, he similarly very different from you? That's a good question. You know, uh, because what I failed to say at that time is that every character that you ever play is inside you. Every good character that is ever written is already there. There are We're all the same. And then you have to delineate uh, personality traits. But you start with yourself. So Gene started off as an asshole. And as I played him without thinking about it, he, he started just to, um, there were rays of warmth. And Bill and Alex said this to me. They said, oh, yeah, uh, he could be that too. So uh, he is close to me. I, I hope I'm not as much of an asshole as he is. I once auditioned for the guy that robbed the house on Full House. And I carried a loaded Beretta with me into the audition just to feel the weight of it. Did you get the part? Oh, they freaked out. Now look, you're in a shell. You need to break out. And I've got the perfect antidote for you. 10 cc's of pure mammoth. Mammoth? Yeah, you're gonna play Blake in Glengarry Glen Ross, the movie. I'm gonna send you the pages. Here's my only direction. Let the cat out. He started off as an asshole, and then, he, as you said, he kind of softened up, um, you know, based on, I think, a lot of your own your own warmth. Um, but then this season, in the third season, we really start to learn how big of an asshole he was uh, in his early days. And these stories start coming out of all these horrible things that he's done to other actors and, you know, people he worked with. Um, of course, you were well known as one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. Um, but, you know, <laughs> do you worry about, you know, people telling stories about you that, that make you sound less nice? Or is that why you're, you think you've been nice is to avoid that, that kind of thing? You know what? It, I'm not nice. I don't think as much as I am grateful. And I am grateful that I'm walking on the earth. I'm grateful that I had a dream and I'm still living it. I'm, I'm grateful with the group of people that I am working with. So um, I don't, I used to care a lot more. I can honestly say I used to care a lot if I thought someone was talking about something that was not the image I want it to be. I now know that I'm frail and human. Yeah. So if, if someone did tell a story about you that, that didn't align with that image, you as would long just... as it was true, that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, there's some really funny stories in, in Barry about, uh, about Gene's past. Um, and it, it's just, it, I love hearing those and those starting to come out. Um, we, 
you know, when I talked to you after season one, we were kind of predicting that Gene was headed into darker territory. He was, a lot of it was comic relief in that first season. Um, You got to be really funny and you're still really funny on the show, but it has gone into some pretty dark places. Um, I want to tell you, I got a flashlight with, right, you know, from Ace Hardware, because I, I mean, it, it was like amazing. I think that uh, HBO asked Bill uh, in the last episode of this last season, the third season, they said, couldn't there be like a smile? <laughs> he went, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, season three opens and Gene's in a very precarious spot, um, you know, where it seems like he could be, Barry's about to kill him really at that first episode. Um, and then it kind of starts to turn around. Um, you know, I, I talked to Bill Hader about this, that it seems like the he and the writers were kind of had to figure out a way not to kill you off because they enjoy having you on the show so much. And, uh, and you know, that is he, my, that is the first question that I ask at the beginning of yeah. every season when we're talking, <laughs> yeah. I say, Hey Bill, am I dead? Yeah. <laughs> and he, so far he, he says, no, what they did is they kind of came up with this scheme where Barry's going to gain forgiveness by, uh, finding you acting work and and trying to make you the success in Hollywood that you that you never could be. So how did you react to that plan and and think about how Gene would take that, you know, because this is the guy who, you know, killed the the love of his life in a ways. Absolutely. Um and now he's, you know, trying to to gain your forgiveness by finding you work. You know, it is interesting because when I am, from from when I hold the gun on Barry and I'm filled with rage and, and sadness because he has killed the very love of my life, to the moment now I'm in the trunk of his car and he won't even let me have my hamburger, you know, before we travel again because I will get nauseous. I'm on the ground in an isolated scene by a by a power tower somewhere uh, in the hills of L.A. And I say the truth to him. It's not the way it works. Are you crazy that you think, first of all, I can forgive you? And second of all, you're going to get me work after Everybody considers me to be the worst person in the universe. <laughs> so it was very clear how I was feeling. But at the same time, you kind of start to go along with it when I want it to be starts alive. to work. Yeah, well, that's true. I want to tell you something. I know that we're making a television show. But when I walk into my house and I turn the corner and he is sitting there, it gives me chills to think about it with his arm around my grandson. And he says, him and him go away. Wowie. And then he forces me to say, I love you. <laughs> um, of course, you know, now that the season's over, we can talk about that big, uh, you know, twist at the end where Gene has been, you know, helps basically trick Barry into getting arrested and he's taken away in handcuffs at the end. Um, what do you think is going through Gene's mind in that moment? Um, you know, when he's watching that, uh, his, you know, this guy get, get arrested finally. At that last moment, I'm looking at the guy who killed Janice, who killed my future, my emotional future. But before that, I think I'm very ambivalent. I mean, one of my favorite scenes ever 
was the one with uh, Robert Wisdom. I wanted to ask you about that. It's an incredible scene. In his garage. Did Barry Berkman love my daughter? Did Barry Berkman love my daughter? Look at a man when he talks to you. Did Barry Berkman love my daughter, Gene? Did Barry Berkman love my baby girl, Janice Moss? No, he didn't. Why are you protecting Barry Berkman? Why are you protecting Barry Berkman? Did you love my daughter? Why are you protecting Barry Berkman? Only a crane, empty, two chairs, and us, no crew. They are on the other side of the garage wall. So you can't even see anyone else. No. And I have said this before, but in that scene, I am standing on the shoulders of Robert Wisdom. Did you know when you read that scene how intense it would be to, to act it? No. We shot it, I think, five times in a row. I wasn't even sure that I would be able to um, to fully fill that five times in a row. And I, I'm telling you, there is an acting God who is looking down on me. And what I love, too, is after that scene, we kind of learn that Gene's a better actor than we thought, because we get to see him you know, fool Barry into going into the house, which he, you know, wouldn't do if he knew what was what was on the other side. Uh, Bill mentioned that several times to me during the year, and I didn't always know what he meant. He said, we're going to see just how good an actor Gene is. You have a gun on you? You have a fucking gun? You have a no. fucking gun? No. Uh-huh. What the fuck is this? What is wrong with you? He lives right there. You're in front of his fucking house? Are you nuts? I don't know what else to do. Well, you gotta go in there and shoot him? You don't know what this man is capable of. Barry, he's gonna ruin me. He's gonna destroy everything I worked for. Get the fuck out of here. I'm gonna go talk to him. You get the no, fuck out no, of here. No, you can't talk to him. He's no. That man only wants revenge. You cannot talk to him. He's crazy. He knows everything, Barry. He knows you killed Janice. I'm so sorry. Just let's get in the car and go. Yeah, I mean, you said that this scene with that we were talking about in the garage with Robert Wisdom was the most intense work that you've done since Yale Drama School. True. What did you think that your career would, would be when you were back in those days when you were getting that training? When I was, um, uh, when I was training, when I was 22, 23, I was not... I was not, I was like a muffin <laughs> when you're baking it and you take a, a, a toothpick and you put it in and it's, and the center is not done yet. You put it back. I, I went back into the oven for the next, um, 40 years. <laughs> How so? I, I'm a late bloomer. Uh, whatever my, uh, learning challenge is, whatever my background is, my emotional real emotional self never was able to flower until late later in life. So do you think that that held you back in the early days when you were trying to to get work? Without a doubt. 
without a doubt. No, uh, what what really held me back, except that I wouldn't have changed a, a hair on its head. When I changed my voice, the fawns came out like a torrent. And because I was, um, uh, he was so popular that uh, you don't beat uh, typecasting. You don't beat the system. I mean, it was, it's like the, the epitome of a, a blessing and a curse, that, that character, right? Yeah, I mean, more blessing. I have to say more well, blessing. Right. I, I would not, I would not um, uh, give that back for all my entire life. I, I just, I, it was just amazing what happened in my life because I played the fonts. Do you feel like, so you're, you know, it's pretty, not that long after you got out of uh, school that you got that, that role, right? I got out of school, went to New York for a year and a half, uh, did the Lords of Flatbush, did a lot of commercials, mm-hmm. came out here for one month in the second week. I got the fonts. What was that? What was that process like of, of getting that role? Was it? It was something I know a lot of actors were were going in for at the time, right? The process is one of my teachers, Bobby Lewis, rest his soul, one of the great acting teachers of history. He said to us, "You have your job is to get the job. Once you get the job, your job is then to do it." But you don't worry about anything else except getting it. And my, uh, I was ferocious (laughs) in being single-minded about getting the job. And you think that that's what did it was kind of really focusing in on, on that goal as opposed to thinking, you know, you weren't necessarily thinking about how you would play it once it was a show. Had no idea. But the other thing is changing my voice. Changing my voice changed my life. Did you go in? Did they know what you were really like when you went into to audition for the fonts? I presented Henry to the eleven people: Gary Marshall and Eddie Milkis, Tom Miller, Millie Gussie was the head of casting at Paramount in her big office in the administration building. I was as Henry awkward, and I um, had hair down to my shoulders. <laughs> And as soon as I changed my voice, I was unleashed. Yeah, and they—I they, mean—they could see it. Obviously, that you that you could do this this role, even though it wasn't, even though he wasn't you. Gary and saw whereas, that. Yeah, Gary Marshall saw it. Wanted a big six foot Italian. They got a five six and a half Jew. <laughs> you know. Um, so you got famous very fast uh, after that, and that show took off. How did you handle that emotionally? You know, the the fame aspect of it. I figured out, and later, I figured out later that my learning challenge had a component and my emotionality were kind of like discombobulated. I never believed what other people were saying. I liked that they were saying it. It was pragmatic that they were saying it because, you know, I was reaping the benefit, but I never believed that they liked me that much, that I was that successful, that it it was like two different worlds. I saw somewhere that you, uh, that you turned down hosting Saturday Night Live at some point. Was that that during that, that time? Exactly. Uh, I was, uh, I was not ready to do that job. I could not do that job the way that it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Did you have any regrets about that afterwards, turning it down? No, but I am ready now. Yeah, you think you could do it now? I could do it now, but I couldn't do it then. 
Yeah. I mean, I I would love to see you get that opportunity to do it now. I think that would be pretty special. But uh, all I'm saying is that if it came, I would be scared. I would be nervous, but I could climb that mountain. Then I was in the foothills and I set up camp there and I wasn't moving. (laughs) Um, Was it a lot about the, you know, the fear of reading the, the cue cards or was it something more than that? It was my being awkward when if I couldn't be that character, I wasn't I didn't have a lot to offer. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you did, you know, you did obviously so many different types of characters in school, but then do you think it was just getting, you got kind of stuck in this, in this guy and, and I got didn't know stuck. how to do anything I, else? I didn't get a lot of opportunity for about eight years. What was the first big opportunity to act again um, after, after Happy Days? Absolute Strangers. Gil Cates, who was the president of SAG at that time, also a director, It was a television movie, 1991. Not only did I move closer to where I wanted to be as an actor with all that time in between, but that was the next big thing that happened. A real story, a drama, and I was very happy I got to do that. Was it difficult to get back into acting after taking such a long break? No. You know what is interesting? I was in a repertory theater uh, after I graduated from Yale Drama School. Uh, My first job was with the Yale Repertory Theater. I made $173 a week. Happy as a clam. You did a play in the day, you rehearsed it, and you did another play at night for the audience. If you brought a play back that you had done a year ago, that play, unbeknownst to you, has grown inside you. And it comes out better than the first time. It comes out richer, thicker. And that's what happened during the frustration, the frustrating time of not being able to act from being the end of happy days until the absolute strangers. But I wonder, I wonder if I don't remember where that came and then I also did for uh, for ABC the American Christmas Carol where I play, played Scrooge. And I tried to talk myself out of that one. And it turned <laughs> into a, a wonderful experience. Really? Why did you try to talk yourself out of it? I thought, hey, Alistair Sims, Bill Murray played Scrooge. Well, who am I? Where, where do you have the nerve to play that iconic character? You and uh, the The lack of self... Um, was beating myself into submission until my courage just said, oh, shut up and just do it. And that's happened to me many times, the Neil Simon play. I can't do a Neil Simon play. Oh, my God, that's Neil Simon. Oh, shut up. And then uh, John Ritter and I, and uh, uh, we did it on, on Broadway for nine months. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, what you're describing, you know, is often called imposter syndrome, which, you know, is the thing where you, where you don't, don't believe you can, you can do something or don't think you should be there. But it sounds like that's something that you've dealt with a lot. Oh my, can I just say, I invented the syndrome. Oh yeah. <laughs> does it, does it, do you get over it, do you think? Or is it always there with each new you thing? You get over you... it. You get over it. As I did work on myself as I opened and I was able to, um, to mature the imposter syndrome takes a backseat and eventually now it's still there. It's a habit maybe, 
you it 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 starts to invade and you're able to beat it back into submission and just do what you know you're supposed to do Coming up, Henry talks about how Adam Sandler helped revive his comedy career, and later gives me the great pleasure of reciting my all-time favorite line from Arrested Development. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with the creator and star of Barry, Bill Hader, and Arrested Development cast members like Tony Hale, David Cross, and Michael Sarah, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Henry Winkler. One of the people who gave you opportunities, you know, not long after um, your return to acting, I know, was Adam Sandler, who kind of invited you into his world. What's the story behind you getting connected with him? Okay, I was doing the worst movie ever made by a human being. It was called Control Tower. It starred Kiefer Sutherland. It was horrific. The process was terrible. The people in charge were terrible. Kiefer Sutherland had to take over for one day as a director. <laughs> and in that day was better than anybody directing all of the rest of the movie. And in that day, in that making of that film, I got a call. Adam Sandler would like you to be in The Water Boy. I was invited to his house. On Sundays, he would had this incredible crowd of human beings playing basketball because he's a, a sports person. And uh, Jim Carrey was there and Brad Pitt was there. And oh, God. Oh, my God. And um, the, the first, my, my lesson about Adam was this. I thought I knew what I was doing. And I said, you know, the coach would wear a baseball cap. They would, Adam would like you to wear a pie poor cat. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no but I want to wear a baseball cap. Adam 
would like you to wear a pie pork eye, uh, uh, a pie, pork pie hat or, or, a, pork or pie a kind hat. of bucket hat. Almost. A bucket hat. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. A bucket hat. And at that moment, I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> Did that tell you something about the character? That tells me something about Adam. Adam is brilliant. He is in charge of every detail of every project. And uh, you learn he not only has great instincts, but he knows what he wants. Are you all right? What? I wasn't going to do nothing, Coach. Well, you better do something. You got to defend yourself here, Bobby. Mm, but they, 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 they finally tuned the athletic machine. I am not telling you to go on a shooting rampage. But you have to stand up for yourself or they're going to ride you all season long. Believe me. I've seen it myself. And he had put you in the Hanukkah song, too, which must have been an honor. I called him and thanked him. That's how I first met him on the phone. My son, Jed, was working at Brillstein Gray, working with Adam. And he got me the phone number so I could call Adam and say, <laughs> I'm so proud to be in that uh, song. And then he kept putting you in movies, right? After, after The Waterboy. Uh, then I was in Click, and then I was in Little Nicky. Uh, I'm in bed. He calls me 11 o'clock at night. You got to do me a favor. I said, okay. He said, Sammy Sosa won't show up. I Sammy went, oh, Sosa. Okay. Sammy Sosa. I said, okay. Uh, where, do, where do I do? I got in the car at 1130 at night, went to Griffith Park in, the, in, uh, in L.A., found the, uh, the production. <laughs> They immediately put me on a rock, shoot me, Henry Winkler, covered in bees, whisk me off the rock into a makeup chair. And at, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning until 3.30, I'm in makeup getting my bee stings. <laughs> that was, that, you didn't know you were in that movie until that night? I did not know I was in the movie until he called me at 11 o'clock at night. That's hilarious. Yeah, I didn't know that was supposed to be uh, Sammy Sosa. Or, yeah, great. I think that I think that's who it was uh, who, who so wouldn't funny. show up. See, the, the sports people. Yeah, well, you got it. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good lesson. Is answer the phone. I want to tell you, answer the phone. <laughs> um, we have but, to. You talk know what? As a matter yeah. of fact, I want to tell everybody should have that needle pointed in their <laughs> house somewhere. Answer the phone. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Um, another, uh, another phone call that you answered, um, is for Arrested Development, which I, I is one of my all time favorites and, and your performance in it specifically, I think is, is fantastic. Um, that's really, you know, my generation's, uh, show, um, that was supposed to just be a one episode gig. Two, one or two episodes as the, uh, uh, the lawyer for the family. So now I'm there and i'm sitting the whole family is there i'm sitting at the end of the coffee table and there are danish and i just i don't know what got into me i just slid a danish closer and closer to me <laughs> eventually put it into my briefcase for later <laughs> and there i am for 5 years with this incredible cast and again a brilliant human being mitch hurwitz Mitch Incredible. Hurwitz would come down. I mean, he was watching. I don't know how this, I never figured this out, but he was watching the shooting in his office. We we're on the, um, the lot in Culver City, Culver Studios. And all of a sudden he comes down, he goes, you know what? Say this, say this. And it, I, I said, but what I'm saying is funny. He said, no, 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 go ahead. And then he wrote me a line. 
that was funnier than the funniest thing I've ever said. Uh, 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 time after time, <laughs> he is is like another level. Yeah, my my favorite line, and and I think it's all about your line reading in that show is. Um... Those are balls. Oh my God! <laughs> Reading the to- uh, the 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 map of the the mountains, go no way. Those are balls. <laughs> oh my God! That was it was what just, a moment. They gave me great great stuff. When we started talking to you, we didn't have anything, but now we got something, and you're going to do time for it. Those are the pictures. They're all over the news. Those are balls. What? Barry was right. Yeah. Tobias had inadvertently photographed himself while learning to use his camera phone. See, this close, they always look like landscape. Nope. You're looking at balls. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think this is something we probably talked about the last time we met, but is that that show in particular, I think, opened you up to this whole new genre of comedy um, with Parks and Recreation and Children's Hospital and all these things that, you know, it really is a whole chapter of your career, these shows that um, in the, you know, in the past, I guess now 20 years. But Children's Hospital, I get a call from Rod Cordry who said, hey, would you like to do this? I said, of course I'd like to do this. I had no idea what this was. <laughs> so it's a 15-minute show at 12 o'clock at night on Adult Swim. So the, I, I have admitted this before, but this is the truth. I didn't understand one joke. <laughs> I said once, I swear, I said uh, when I was doing press on the set, I said, oh, yeah, we're doing this wacky comedy. They pulled me aside. They said, it's a meta comedy. <laughs> I went back on camera and said, hey, well, it's not it's not wacky. It's a meta comedy. I still don't understand what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like uh, it's anti-comedy, one of those things where it's, you know. But those people are still, um, you know, they're still friends. And Rob Ubel, um, I, I was, he asked me to officiate his wedding. Oh, my goodness. It was a great honor. How do you how do you perform in something in a comedy when you when you don't know why it's funny? Do you know what? You just, I, I will tell you exactly. <laughs> there are two actors. One is English. One is American. They both get a part as a short order cook. The American goes out. He buys a, a, an apron. He gets a spatula. He goes. He practices in his uh, kitchen over and over. He practices the flipping and the jumping and the making eggs and opening an egg with one hand. And then he goes to the set. The English actor just goes to work. <laughs> yeah, that's the answer is you just go to that work. That is the answer. You just go to work. And I was surrounded by these incredible comedy minds. And I just talked to them on screen. What do we got? Kid works in a knife factory after school. Boss says he's off thumbs. Hey, Owen, ah. it turns out that Blake here never went to medical school. We're just going to add him to your interns today. Call it even. Fine. Welcome to the team. Blood pressure, 50 over 80. White blood cell count elevated. Slight fever. What's the call? Too soon to tell. God, you are good. Look, I don't want to interrupt here, and you're one of our best, but isn't this clearly a knife wound? Hey! Suit, you stay out of my way! The knife is just a small piece of the puzzle. We got to figure out what's really wrong with this kid. I mean, I think Barry and this role of of Gene Kusnow, I you know, is about as good of a role, a good of a show as you could you could get. Um, you know, but do you 
Do you think, are there things that you still haven't done that you want to do in this business? Whatever comes next, whatever it is that's next. This is what I've learned. When the Happy Days was over, I had an office at Paramount. I had a big leather red chair and I sat in my leather chair and I put my feet up and I was, my brain hurt. I was in a panic. Will I ever do anything as meaningful? Will I ever do anything with as much impact? What will it be? How will I know? I I was inert. I was in a panic of inaction. And from then till now, I have learned you never know. Yeah. So now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you some, some questions uh, about firsts in your, in your life and career around comedy. Um, and going all the way back, do you remember growing up, the first piece of comedy or one of the first that really made you laugh hard that you saw? Yes. One of the things that I saw was a play by Neil Simon, one of his first plays, Come Blow Your Horn. And I saw it and I, I couldn't breathe. I saw it. <laughs> this is funny. This is constantly funny. Will I ever be able to do this? Because I had the dream, but now I saw what it could be. Could I ever fill that? Could I ever live that? Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? I don't. I was a tube of toothpaste in nursery school, <laughs> hilltop nursery school, and I was a tube of toothpaste. <clears throat> and I think her name was Vivian, was the toothbrush. <laughs> and I squeezed my stomach and my back and the audience laughed because I improvised that in order to get the, the toothpaste out onto Vivian's toothbrush. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh, this is good. What about the first big laugh that you remember getting um, when you were on Happy Days and performing in front of a live audience, uh, something that you did that really got a big laugh uh, from the audience? I would have to say that it was the snap hitting the jukebox and the Petrolungo twins coming up to dance with me. <laughs> I think I think the audience um, went crazy. It, it had to do with um, with snapping and reducing language to the sound e. Yeah. <laughs> I often ask, a lot of stand-up comedians come on this show, and I often ask them about their first time performing stand-up on late-night TV. Um, I know you were, you've were been on late-night shows throughout your whole career, um, but I would love to hear um, about the first time you went on uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which I believe was in 1977. Um, I, do you remember that experience and, and what it was like? Exactly the same experience as being asked to uh, host Saturday Night Live and I wasn't ready. I was so, it was such an out-of-body experience. It was so not relaxed that I think I made Johnny uncomfortable. It was horrendous. I only got good <laughs> at this lately. Yeah, it was always kind of scary to go on those shows. Always scary, always tense, just like I would turn into um, baby food in a jar. It also must have been the first time that a lot of people saw the real you who were 
fans of Fonzie, right? I mean, people probably didn't know what you were like. Yes. Now, daytime television was different. I was on the Dinah Shore show a lot, and she made me so comfortable. I had such a nice relationship with her, and it is the first and only time I met David Bowie. Oh, what was that like? It was awe-inspiring, <laughs> you know, because music celebrities, uh, music people, singers, make me tongue-tied. Mm. Yeah, they're more intimidating than meeting uh, some people who do the same thing as you. Yeah, and I love music. I just can't make it. So I get crazy. My mind goes crazy. Yeah, well, I, I also often ask uh, about the first time uh, guests met one of their comedy heroes, um, but maybe that wasn't as intimidating as meeting some of your musical heroes. I, oh, they're, they're horrible stories. I, uh, but I will say delightful. I, I met Bruce Springsteen three times after a concert. And if I go and see him again, I will have the courage to ask for a selfie. <laughs> this was a, this is a, this is a, a great story, I think. Ron, and, Ron Howard and I are walking up the street, and Robert De Niro is leaning against the doorway of the mill on Paramount Lot where they built all the sets, the, uh, the woodworking mill. We said, we got to go say hello. We got to go. We walk up, told him, you know, introduced ourselves. He was very taciturn, very shy. And I, the first movie I ever saw in Hollywood was Mean Streets. That was the first um, uh, screening I've ever been invited to. And I said, Mr. De Niro, you use the word fuck better than anybody on the planet. <laughs> Cut to 40 years later. Uh, a good a friend of ours is Nancy Meyershire. Uh, her daughter is, uh, her daughters are friends with uh, our children. She did the intern. We go, we're in New York, we're invited, we go to the screening. Robert De Niro is there. I said, I have to take a selfie with you. I have to ask what what everybody asks of me. I'm now asking as a fan of you. And he said, 40 years ago, you said I used the word fuck better than anybody on the planet. <laughs> I want wow. you to remember. That was memorable for him, too. Oh, my God. My head exploded. We talked about your audition for Happy Days. Do you have any other audition stories from your career that really stand out, either because they went so well or because they went so poorly? No, I, this was amazing. I, I Now, Jimmy Burroughs and his, his uh, sister, they grew up uh, across the street from me. So I've known them a long time. My wife and friends are going to Africa for the first time. I say, I can't go. I'm going to audition for a pilot for Jimmy Burroughs. Come on. I'm sitting in those chairs that surround the wall, those metal chairs. Most of them, younger actors, they say, you're Henry Winkler. What are you doing here? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to get a job. You? So now I'm sitting there waiting to go in. They call my name. And I don't know what happened, but I flung that door open, rushed in like a, a character on Seinfeld and just started doing the, um, the dialogue and I got the job. <laughs> what show was that? Uh, Larry Wilmore wrote it. I don't remember the title, but it was about used car salesmen. <laughs> Perfect. Very funny. Didn't sell. Didn't get the pilot. Missed out on going to Africa. But the, yeah, so did you, you didn't even make the pilot? I'm, I'm, I, I, we made the pilot. Oh, yeah, but then it didn't get picked up to, to Didn't series. get picked yeah. up. 
too bad. You have you have a, I'm sure you have a, a bunch of those from your from your time where you, whatever it was, didn't last long enough. I know there was one where you uh, the the one where you played a sort of Rush Limbaugh type character. Okay, so that was so funny. Written by Mark Lawrence, who was in the stable of um, Gary David Goldberg, his stable of writers, and then went on to write all these wonderful movies. Sends me a script. I read it. I call him. I said, Mark, this is so funny. I laughed out loud. It's too controversial. I read it again. I laugh out loud. I think to myself, I can't do this. He calls me and I say, okay, I'll read it a third time. This time I said, you know what? You, you can't say no. This material is so good. You cannot say no. I'm playing Rush Limbaugh with a gay daughter. And this was in the 90s. Right or early two thousands, but I think that I think it was nineties, yeah, yeah, or eighties, maybe even the eighties. Okay, we we sell it to NBC. I get a ticket to go to the uh, the advertisers upfronts where all the networks show their new wares and try and get advertising dollars in New York. Every network, every show, I've got the ticket. All of a sudden, somebody says, "Could I have that ticket back?" Somebody at NBC, higher up, must have read it and said, not on our network. Jeff Katzenberg has now moved from Paramount, where I was doing Happy uh, Happy Days. He now moves to Disney, and he said, we're going to sell it. He sells it to Fox. They now say, well, we can't have a gay daughter. How about a son? who went to college to become a lawyer, but now wants to be a chef. That was the controversy. <laughs> That's the, so controversial. <laughs> Here's the lesson. This is a, a major lesson. When you're doing something that you know is right, and whatever the power is says they want to bastardize it, go home. You can never make it other than the brilliant thing it was. Walk away. Yeah, I mean, that's why these these great shows that you have been on are a sort of singular vision kind of thing, whether it's, you know, Mitch Hurwitz or Bill Hader, and, and they have total control, and that's what makes it great. That is absolutely true. Uh, I met uh, with Bill Hader and Alec Berg the beginning of the second season. I said, I am grateful. I love this. But the guy you wrote in the second season is not the guy I created that seemed to work pretty well in the first season. They said, I want to tell you, we're never going to repeat ourselves. And I went, okay, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, you just had to trust him. You just had to trust him. And now I don't even think about it. Um, do you have a, a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really wasn't funny when it happened? No, because <laughs> when it happened and it wasn't funny, it was so devastating to me, whatever it was. that You, you can't laugh about it years later. I'm in the uh, the original Barney's, 17th Street and 7th Avenue, New York City. Men's clothing, walking down the aisle. A woman in a security uniform comes up to me and said, Mr. Winkler, there's a phone call for you. That's crazy. I said, no, no, no. There's a phone call for you. I uh, go to the, the security stand. It's Jeff Katzenberg. How do you know you were at Barney's? How did he know I was at Barney's? I still to this day don't know. <laughs> he said, I want you to direct a movie. I said, well, I read two, and I'd like to direct Stella. I think with that, it was going to star Bette Midler. He said, I want you to direct Turner and Hooch. 
I said, I read that, but you know what? I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't get that really. I don't, that's not really my kind of movie. Uh, I'd like to do Stella. He said, I want you to do Turner and Hooch. So I come to Disney. I prepare 11 weeks for the movie. I get to know this bass mast, uh, whatever it's called, uh, bulldog, this gigantic bull mastiff kind of big dog. Yeah. Wow. With a lot of slobber make really good friends with him. Sounds like a hard job directing a dog. Well, there are three or four of them. Each one has a, uh, a different uh, <laughs> special, yeah, skill. special skill. But I'm, I'm friendly with these little puppies. I love puppies. Tom Hanks. We cast Mayor Winningham. Uh, Angela Bassett. I gave her the part of uh, Tom Hanks's partner's wife with almost no lines. She's from Yale. She's just starting. I said, there are no lines. She said, I'll take it. 13 days into filming, I'm called into Jeff Katzenberg's office. He said, you know, I just don't see it in the dailies. And I went and cleaned out my trailer and went home. And it took me until like about last Tuesday. <laughs> that, was, that, was, uh, that was tough. Uh, it wasn't funny then, and it's not funny now. Oh, well. Maybe it'll be funny uh, next yeah, Tuesday. the next time we talk. Yeah. Uh, finally, I like to ask my guests uh, what's making them laugh right now. So uh, is there anything that you've seen recently? Hacks. Hacks? Yeah. Hacks. Oh, fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, th there is, you know, during the pandemic, my wife and I became major television watchers. Yeah, as did, as did a lot of people. So... You know, so, like one of my favorite shows uh, was 1883. And the writer, producer, director of that, oh, is it uh, Sheridan Taylor? Yeah, Taylor Sheridan, yeah. Taylor Sheridan. I wrote him a fan letter. I know it got there because he called me, but I'm glad that I wrote it to the right guy. <laughs> I can't even remember his name. But Hacks makes me laugh. Oh, you know what used to make me laugh? Episodes about the English couple that's a very funny show yeah wasn't that unbelievable with uh with uh, matt leblanc yeah oh my he was he was better than he was on friends i know he's so great on that oh i thought that was like one of the funniest shows I, i've seen in, in ever great well uh you have been making me laugh for so long and uh you're so so good on barry and i'll be rooting for you on on emmy night again and uh hopefully this podcast really puts you over the top but uh you don't you don't need the help so you know what i do and i'm very grateful that you said that and thank you that was incredible thanks again to henry winkler you can pick up his new memoir, Being Henry, The Fonz, and Beyond, right now wherever you get your books. And we will put a link to purchase it in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram and Threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you 
very soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.